Welcome to the Pencils and Lipstick Podcast, a weekly podcast for writers. Grab a cup of coffee, perhaps some paper and pen, and enjoy an interview with an author, a chat with a writing tool creator, perhaps a conversation with an editor or other publishing expert, as well as Kat's thoughts on writing and her own creative journey. You'll laugh, you'll cry, well, hopefully not actually cry, but you will probably learn something. And I hope you'll be inspired to write. Because as I always say, you have a story, you should write it down. This is Pencils and Lipstick. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 148 of Pencils and Lipstick. I'm Kat Caldwell. Today it is, I think it's September 9th. Um, yes, because I'm late in recording this. It is a beautiful Friday early afternoon. We have some sunshine today. It's wonderful. Um, and it's September, guys. It is moving fully into September. And this is the time when most of you, no matter where you live, most likely, kids are in school. And maybe you have a little bit more of your day organized, let's say, whether you're working full-time, half-time, whether you've decided to become a full-time writer, most likely if everyone else's day around you is more organized, your day is as well. So this is the truth for my life at the moment. And in fact, I'm getting a lot more writing done. Um, although as I constantly say, I would like to be more organized with it. Um, but you know, here we go. So <laughs> we are stepping back into it's September 2022, and I am still struggling with the same old things. So I have um, partly organized, uh, outlined ish, organized ish, the um, r- one half of the historical romance um, dowsers part, and I am filling in. Carmen's part. And I don't mean that I'm writing it. I'm writing out the sort of main scene outlines, basically, and really nailing down um, what they're wanting at the beginning, what they want in the middle. And then I know how it ends. It's a romance. It's historical romance, but romance is always and on a happily ever after. H-E-A, right? If you ever see that hashtag, with books, it's usually what that means. So I'm working that out. Um, I don't know why I seem to be focusing a lot more on Dowser. He is my favorite co- um, character in Stepping Across the Desert, so that might be why. Um, there I go, answering my own questions. But, um, you know, I'm also focusing on on Carmen. I guess maybe Dowser is coming to me easier than Carmen, but I have figured out one very important thing um, I won't tell you what that is, but one important thing for the beginning of the book, and now things are really moving as far as outside the ring, I'm continuing to, um, figure that out. And the other day I took a walk with no music and no podcast and actually ended up like writing in my notes on my phone about 500 words as an idea came to me. And that is, both dangerous <laughs> if you're walking, depending on where you're walking, and awesome. Um, 
I love having a phone nearby so that I can, you know, sort of do that. I clearly slow my, um, my pace as I do that. Um, this is a lot easier if you're like on an elliptical, you know, or a treadmill, <laughs> you might look a little crazy in the gym, like typing ferociously on that tiny little screen. But, um, but I needed to get it out cause it was like coming to me as I was cooking. And then I thought, okay, I tried to dictate it out and it didn't work. I don't know y'all, if you know how to dictate in a way that doesn't feel silly and I, I, I don't know. I think with me, like my brain ends up going in a whole different direction. It's like, it doesn't know what it's doing. So I, I ended up typing it anyway. The, the thing is the whole point of this is that things are going well. I'm actually quite excited about how well they are going. Um, also next week I start, well, when this, when this podcast drops, I start the courses. Now, if you, um, are just now hearing this, and you are looking for a course in order to really get your book done. Let's see what we're doing. And in the story development course, if you are a writer who has written one novel already, sort of have that idea of what it takes to get a novel done, or you are um, almost done with a novel, this is probably the course for you. We are starting on Monday um, today, basically when this drops, but you can always join in because everything is going to be recorded. We are going to really get into the key scenes and the beats to your genre. And we're going to write up, um, scene cards and we're going to evaluate our scenes. We're going to go into writing authentic dialogue, um, presenting book blurbs, getting into, you know, what it takes to get editing done, what editing means, because it doesn't necessarily mean what a lot of writers think that it means. Um, so that starts Monday. And again, if you are looking for a course and you really want to get into it, Monday the, the 12th, today the 12th, um, is, is more like an intro and giving a little homework. So you won't have missed too much. Plus you would have the recording and for beginners that is starting on Tuesday. Um, so you can still get into that and we are going to really get into how to, um, how to think about your book, how to structure the book, going through kind of how I'm plotting things out. It doesn't mean of course that things won't change as my novel outside the ring has completely changed but it helps you structure things, um, the tools that you might need, the, um, the ways to get into a writing habit, you know, learning to get into your characters, um, learning dialogue basics, uh, all these things where it's just the kind of the same thing, just on a more, um, beginner level, I guess and that will be on Tuesdays. And again, you know, Tuesday is sort of the welcoming day. And so if you are a little late and come in the next week, you will have the recording and you won't have missed too much. So I mentioned something about editing and it not being really what you think, what you might not be what you think it is. Maybe you think it is exactly what it is. So I was talking to um, a writer the other day about how to look at her scenes. Now you can take your entire manuscript and you can look at it and you can start dotting the I's and crossing the T's. But um, the more I read about editing and storytelling and especially the relationships that 
writers about a hundred years ago had with their editors, the more I realize we've lost this art of editing. Um, and so I've, I've really come back to scene editing. And as I go back and sort of fix, you know, the thing that I'm adding to outside the ring is requiring a fix, uh, like an overall fix, um, in the novel. And so I have to go scene by scene and see where to put the threads, you know, like taking the needle and sort of threading them together and taking this new thread and making sure it's going through each of the scenes in order to stitch it up, um, properly at the end. Great metaphor guys. (laughs) Um, so I'm looking at the scenes in a, in a really, um, micro way and then kind of pulling out and looking macro. Um, and so I was talking to her about that and she asked me, you know, what, I don't understand. Like, what do you mean? What are you looking for in these scenes? Like, I know that I need them to meet and I need them to do this certain thing. And I need to tell the reader who he is or who she is. And I say, yeah, that's all great. But like, let's, there are scenes, especially when you're a new writer in which you might like it or you think it's showing something great. And it's not that it's not well-written, but it's not actually needed for the story. And we had to get into that deeper. So I thought I would share with you the three main things that I've started to look for in a scene, a scene, right? And it, depending on how you organize your book, this might be smaller than a chapter. So a scene is in one place. Um, if the character changes a scene, um, the scene has changed. And so we're going to then look at each scene and as the place in which they are. And once they move that place, we're starting a new scene. Now the, the life, you know, of this character continues through. Um, and so you're obviously taking threads from one scene and into another, as you should. This is like a French braid, right? <laughs> I'm really on the hair thing today. Um, but what I'm talking about in a scene is this really um, smaller portion, and it might not just be a chapter. So the first thing I look for is emotional change. And this I really learned from C.S. Lakin. Um, I hadn't really heard it before. Maybe, maybe I just hadn't put it together. But she has a great course on the 10 key scenes that your novel needs. And she's really good at scenes. I took a mini mastermind with her and she's just amazing at, at sort of being able to quickly pick out the things in a scene that are great and things that are not so great and things you should toss. And, you know, she's, um, as brutal as a good editor should be. So emotional change, a main character in each scene should change in each scene, at least subtly. So their emotions should be moving. And if they're not moving, that's a huge, um, red flag you know, you know, when you read that scene that you've written that you like how it's written, but you're not really, it sort of leaves you in this state of just calm hover, <laughs> you know, this, you like, you have that gut instinct that there's something wrong. Like there isn't enough tension. There's nothing really there. It's beautifully written. Yes. Great. Um, but there's something wrong with it. Like there's something not great about it. And the problem most likely I'm thinking, especially of a very um, specific scene in coffee stains that I ended up cutting when they are having dinner. Um, And she goes in frustrated 
and she leaves frustrated. <laughs> and so I liked the way that I was sort of showing the characters and I had all these nuances and, I, you know, describing the area and she's, you know, not from this sort of mentality, this richer, you know, mentality. And so she's struggling with that as well. And I, you know, I could go on and on and I, I really like the scene, but when I looked at it, it's like, there's something wrong with it. And the editor who did that, who edited that book said, you don't need this scene. I got a little offended <laughs> as we usually do. And I now know, I now understand, I sort of have words, I guess, to go to it. The problem that I knew in my gut, thankfully I cut the scene, was that the emotion never changed. He went in confused, was left in a state of confusion. She went in frustrated and mad, left in a state of frustration and anger. And so they, they didn't change at all. So it's like you're just reiterating what happened in the last scene with just a bigger scene, and it's just not needed. Um, this is going to slow down your pacing. Uh, this is going to, this is where some readers will put the book down and not pick it back up, and they won't know exactly why, right? They Because again, it's not saying that your writing's bad, but they won't really know why they've lost their interest. <laughs> so I sort of give this example. Um you take your, your scene, you know, sort of cut it again. It could be shorter than a chapter and you look at where they are in the beginning and why, where they are in the middle and why, and their emotional state, and then where they are at the end and why. And then you, if they're the same, you've got to ask yourself, like, then what's the point of having this scene? And if the scene is needed, then you need to change the tension and you need to up the ante and all those wonderful cliches. So this is kind of like, you know, when the detective or the the police person goes in and gets there, is going to order their lunch. And they're just thinking about lunch and about life. And they're just, you know, or their boss or their partner or whatever. And they're just sort of in their world, right? Life is okay. Nothing, nothing big going on. And then they get up to the counter and they see that the butcher's on the floor with a knife in their back. And then, you know, they go into police mode and who could have done this? And I will find you. So they've gone, even that slight subtle shift of gone from, okay, this is life. No big deal. What am I going to eat for a sandwich to, you know, the case, the chase is afoot <laughs> sort of thing. E even that subtle, that is what's needed. That's what brings us into the story, right? So go through your scenes and mark the beginning, middle, and end, and then ask yourself, if there isn't a change, how can you change it? Or um, how, if the scene's necessary. Another big thing that I see, um, and I don't do this so much, but I, I check for these when I'm looking over manuscripts of other writers, is P person, <laughs> person of view, point of view shifts. Uh, I used to do this a lot <clears throat> because some, some literary stories do this, um, but they do it purposely, not accidentally. Um, but your point of view shift in each scene, each scene, typically until you are really good at your, your craft and you are ready to defend your decisions. Do not do this accidentally. Each scene should be told from the point of view of one person. Um, if you want to tell the same thing from the point of view of many people, there needs to be multiple scenes. Um, Within one scene, you cannot hop. Some people call it head hopping from point of view to point of view to point of view. Now, interestingly enough, 
many European books do this. So there are other ways of thinking. Um, but as a American reader, <laughs> I will say, um, and I read in in three languages, and I, I've seen this mostly published, at least, in um, the Spanish and French, they do head hop, and it is very jarring when they do it. I can then figure, okay, you know, let it go, and this is how things are going to go, but it is a little bit jarring. And so the whole point of sticking with one point of view is so that you don't jar the reader out of that sort of reading reverie, that dreamlike state of them imagining everything. Because when you head hop and it suddenly a statement comes from another point of view, it confuses the reader and they usually have to go back a few lines and reread it in order to understand who's talking now, right? So I'm sure that you can all think of a book or a time in which you had to step back and say, wait a minute, who's talking now? Um, and you don't want that. You don't want to take the reader out of that reading reverie, right? So you need to take your scene, highlight from whose point of view it is, and then take your highlighter and see if you if you start it from somebody else's point of view, right? So if the character comes in and um, they're bringing back a, a book to the library and they're talking about the library and how it smells like old books and how they love the library and all this, and they leave the library, you know, excited for their new book. And then the next line is, Steve hated his job at the library, but he sure loved it when so-and-so came in to, you know, every Thursday to get her books. That's, that's a head hopping that needs to have some sort of scene break if you want him to be talking about his favorite part of Thursday. <laughs> okay. So then we take the scene after we do that. And this isn't, this is just three three quick things. There are other things to look for, but then the main other thing I look for is forward movement. This is whether the scene is necessary. So every scene should be forcing the character to change or forcing the plot in a direction that will lead to forcing the character to change. Do you see what the theme is here? Change, right? So each story needs certain things to happen so that the protagonist you know, sort of develops as their human self, right? They're, they're, they're solving a problem. Most, uh, most, many, 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 many stories are solving sort of an in, inner human problem, maturing, learning, you know, becoming less of a jerk, <laughs> becoming more loving, learning what love is, you know, growing up, all these sort of things. Um, so stories where the protagonist never changes, end up being flat and boring. So if you've gotten feedback that, that the scene is flat, it's probably because nothing is changing. Um, it, and not, not with the character, not with the plot. So as exciting as your plot may be, maybe you plotted a lot and you have this very exciting, um, aliens and ships and guns and all these things happening and everything's so exciting. Um, or as beautiful as your settings are, as beautifully as you're writing this town or wherever this person is, the protagonist is, if 
that beautiful setting or that very exciting plot are not forcing the character into this corner in which they are going to be faced with a decision and they will have to make a decision that will then lead them to the next scene, you might not need that scene or it might need to be rewritten. All right. So this is also having to do with pacing and, you know, books that go on and on and on and on. It's because they're, they have too many scenes in which nothing happens, not in the plot and not with the characters. So you can go back and highlight with a different highlighter. What is finding the difficulty for the, the character? the difficulty that they are facing, and then highlight in a different color their reaction to that difficulty because they have to have a reaction, right? And you can have a scene in which the, the difficulty presents itself and their reaction is to purposely blind themselves to it. As long as it's then, you know, that decision is going to force them into another scene that in another, that in another, that will eventually force them to actually um, make a real decision, right. And take the blinders off. So, um, so this is, these are the main three things that, that I look for right now in my scenes. Of course, these are, you know, just three of the things we also have to look for grammar and we have to look at different things. I'm looking at my notes now and yeah, the auto auto corrects really mess some words up there. <laughs> That's why I paused. Um, so, but these three things, as we're looking through the scenes, this is really going to give you a, a sort of micro view of your scenes and then being able to pull out and see, um, the arc of the macro view arc of the novel and making sure that you are taking out the scenes that aren't doing anything or, um, changing them so that they do something so that your character does something so that your point of view isn't shifting. And so that your scenes that you have are necessary. And this is part of the editing process. This will help you learn to delete things, um, to have fewer darlings in which, um, you know, you just hold on to them because you just love the scene. Um, again, I had another scene in stepping across the desert where they're in the library and it's very angsty and, um, very, you know, he's going to show her, you know, that he loves her. He just can't stand it anymore. And I just loved that scene. I loved writing it. I loved reading it. I loved having it. And it basically was just not getting them anywhere. <laughs> so I had to delete it. So this sort of, when you take scene by scene, it, it helps, um, give you the courage to delete them or end up changing them. Right. So that's my little tip for you today. Um, we are going to get into an interview right after we talk about this week's sponsor. Are you ready to get happier, healthier, and more productive with your writing? Check out this week's sponsor from my friend, Stacy Juba. Her online course, Time Management Blueprint for Writers, Transform Your Life and Finish Your Book is going to revolutionize your writing life. This self-paced, comprehensive course will guide you through the process of organizing your life one step at a time so that you can become healthier and happier while boosting your creativity and productivity. Although it's geared towards writers, any creative can benefit from this in-depth course. 
Through a series of engaging written lessons and short video tutorials that get straight to the point, you'll assess your life in four key areas, electronic clutter, external clutter, internal clutter, and the logistics of getting things done. Stacy, a fiction author, longtime journalist, and freelance developmental editor, will cover her four-step framework to maximize your productivity. Topics include tackling email and social media, organizing your digital files and bookmarks, automating routine tasks, decluttering your home and setting up an inspiring work or writing environment, unwinding, improving focus, and getting into a flow state, handling distractions and interruptions, prioritizing, planning, and breaking down goals into manageable steps, mastering your calendar, pushing through creative blocks and setbacks, deciding which devices and writing apps to use, and nailing your work or other work sessions. If you're ready to stop spinning your wheels and reclaim control, then Time Management Blueprint for Writers Transform Your Life and Finish Your Book is the perfect tool for you. You can check it out the link below in the show notes. Some people move through this world feeling more like observers than participants. They can be found lying on their backs in the grass, looking up at the sky while people walk all around them. When that same sky starts to fall, they'll be the ones we follow because they've seen this in their daydreams. They're the outliers and they're who Madeline writes for. When Madeline's not writing, you might find her sipping whiskey as she watches the sky over the Sandia Mountains turn pink, probably with her German Shepherd, Husky Girl, by her side. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Pencils and Lipstick. Today, I have with me Madeline Mosley. Hello, Madeline. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Kat? Good. And now that I say Mosley, is it a long O? Mosley. Yep, you got it. (laughs) You got it. Constantly have questions about last names. All right, I have sorry. I have a funny name. It's okay <laughs> because there's no extra e. So anyway. Mosley, yes, <laughs> we could give Mosley. Um, <laughs> well, you. This is your second time on the show, but it, it's been a while. You were one of my first participants of my first year when we were a baby podcast. So, would you introduce yourself to people in case they are new listeners? Absolutely. Yeah. My name's Madeline Mosley and I'm a writer and an editor. Um, I've been a professional editor for oh over a decade at this point. I lose count. Um, and yeah, I've been writing for a lot longer than that since I was a kid. But back in 2020, I finally decided to go ahead and release my debut novel, um, which is First Carrier. It's a post-apocalyptic sci-fi novel. And yeah, still writing, still editing, (laughs) doing all that good stuff. All the things. How was it to release a post-apocalyptic novel in the middle of COVID? And a first novel. Um, And a first novel. Challenging. Yeah, it was a learning curve for sure. Um, Thankfully, I did a lot of uh, research on book launches and hopefully, I think, did my homework enough to not totally fall on my face. But it was definitely a learning experience and I took a lot from it. Um, and overall, I mean, I guess I had my expectations pretty low, but it went, it went well. Uh, yeah. yeah. Launching in a pandemic for a relatively dark themed book was, well, okay, I guess I'm doing this then. This is this is life, right? Well, yep. it had nothing to do with the virus, which is no. good. Um, I was listening to another person, of course, I can't remember what the author was, but he had written it 
years before and it came out and it was about a virus. <laughs> Finally, like, his book's coming out. Yeah, oh my gosh. Like, this is not good. <laughs> and interestingly enough, it sold really well for a while. And then it just like petered out, like almost like everyone's like, don't use the word virus around me. <laughs> They're over it. <laughs> yes. These are the things we can't control as artists, right? True so. enough. So you are coming out with another book. Um, it's a sequel. Yes, it's the second book in the series, so following First Carrier. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it is science fiction. Is that true? More than fantasy? What is the yeah. difference between those? Well, I mean, science fiction and fantasy both fall under this great umbrella of speculative mm -hmm. fiction. Okay. Um, and the way that I like to think of it is they both ask what if but they kind of ask it in different ways. Um, and science fiction often warns or, you know, tries to warn people about mistakes we might be making now or could be making in the near future that would cause some problems down the line. Um, right. So that's part of why post-apocalyptic falls under that subcategory of science okay. fiction. Okay. Yeah. So how much of it, of your book do you use, um, like, Science. <laughs> science. Do, do you get to make it up because it is set so much more in the future? Or do you like to add in things that are like speculative science at the moment? Um, a little of both. I would say that for my apocalypse scenario that happened before the events in this book, I really have tried to do my homework and um, talk to some experts about could this happen? Plausibility. I'm not saying it's going to, right. and I'm not saying that it's even highly likely, but could it? Um, and I have some expert friends who are a lot smarter than I am that have said, yep, yeah, that probably that could happen, or this definitely could. A lot of it is based on current science that we have or extrapolating like what how that science probably will advance down the line, but some of it is a little more, yeah, fantasy. I, science fiction is fiction, right? Right. <laughs> at the end of the day, it's based in some sort of real science, but at the same time, there is some freedom with it. So I would say plausibility is important to me, yes. but it is at the end of the day, entertainment, right? Entertainment, right. And your yours is set in the sense of like the earth has gotten way too hot. Let me see. I read this two years ago, right? <laughs> so it has created conditions um, that really, really challenge humanity, basically, right? There's, um, yeah. And it has reduced the population, correct? Correct. Yeah. So the events that happened are kind of a mystery at this point in the series. Um, it's been fun writing the second book because I get to continue to show glimpses mm -hmm. of what happened uh, that led to the world really getting reshaped this way. And there were there was a series of events. I think any time that in a book that's post-apocalyptic, where it's one big thing that happened boom, and everything was different, isn't quite as believable to me. Mm -hmm. I think that apocalypse apocalypses <laughs> happen in stages. Um, and so I think it might start small, right? And right. then another thing happens and another thing happens, and then it becomes this compounding sort of domino effect. And that's what happened um, in my fictional world. But the world that is left over, yeah, there's there's big climate extremes. It's either going to be really, really hot, and you'll see in the sequel that it can also get pretty cold. Mm -hmm. um, and it's set in my home state of New Mexico, which I'm very familiar with in general, both the geography and the weather and 
because we're in a high desert, we really do have these extremes. We have really hot summers and we can have really cold winters. So what's the extreme of that if you take that to its farthest point? Um, has been really fun, yeah, to explore. And, and it makes a challenging environment for your characters to survive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how long, because you already know as a writer what happened in the world, right? So right when we first read it, start reading the first book, First Carrier, we're already in that post-apocalyptic world um, and we're following the characters there. So how did you develop this as a writer? Did you know everything? Like, did you sort of map out what would have happened before because you knew you were going to add it in later? Or what was your process like for knowing all of that? It's a good question. Um, I mean, the basic components of it, I definitely had. Once I had established, I figured out, oh, this is the story I'm writing. Mm. Now let's really think about it seriously. Because it started more or less as a writing exercise, as books can do, right. <laughs> and ended up spinning into more. So once I reached a certain point in that first book, I decided, all right, I need to stop for a minute and really think about what's the the world building going to be? And what's the history of this place? Okay, and I, so you had already started writing, you already had the characters sort of mm -hmm. knowing where these guys were going, but you realized I, for a series, you need to know, like have more of a foundation, I guess. Absolutely. Um, okay. Have more of a foundation. And then as the series continues, you do get to make that deeper, right? Mm. But it gets a little more complicated. Of course, you have to keep track of your details and not Yes. confuse things. And what did I, oh no, I made a horrible mistake. So I've got um, epic giant rolls of butcher paper with complicated multicolored timelines on <laughs> like a yes. serial killer on my wall. Oh my, Cause especially you, in order to make these references back, you have to know yeah. when they sort of happened. Right. Or I'm sure you can come up with a character's name on the fly that no longer around, but you then have to reference that person. Correctly. Absolutely. Yeah. And oh, what color was their hair? <laughs> um, and and it's very specific dates. So my history of the world goes back hundreds of years. Okay. So, you know, you don't have to get too specific for some bits of that time, but the big dates are important. And knowing what happened in those kind of chunks of time is really important, too. Right. Because as a writer, it can take us weeks to months to years to write a book, but a reader can read a book within a few hours and they'll, they'll have that memory, right? Oh, you said a hundred years, but wait, now you said 30. Yep. <laughs> it's going to really, um, so I like your idea of, of stopping when you were in the middle of the first book. Cause like you said, a lot of times we start writing a book or a story and then it becomes more than what we planned on it being. But if you finish a full book, like I finished my first book and now I'm deciding to go back to write a sequel, I'm really constrained by what happened in the first book. Yes, so, you kind of pinned yourself in a corner. And so I am in a corner. So you were very smart to like stop and decide, okay, at least some of this. But I'm always curious about these long series because um, as I watch Harry Potter with my kids, I'm like, I don't think she knew that then, though. <laughs> I've, I've spotted some in Harry Potter, too, that I'm like, but wait. <laughs> wait a minute here. And I think it's just one of those things of like, okay, I, maybe she didn't plan on having an eight-book series. And sure, you, know, you get fans who will forgive you. Um, but it's fun to look at it as a writer sometimes. <laughs> Nobody's perfect, right? This, even J.K. Rowling. Even um, J.K. Rowling. <laughs> so... 
Um, so as you're writing this second book, did you start writing this before you came out with First Carrier or did you wait, like do one project at a time? I, what happened when I finished that first really big draft of First Carrier and, you know, you're exhausted, right? Mm-hmm. After <laughs> writing this book, um, the story was still coming to me pretty smoothly. So I think I wrote about 50 pages of this sequel right okay. off the bat. And then once I started to get more into publishing side of things with First Carrier, kind of took my attention away right. from that sequel. And then when we re- I released uh, First Carrier in 2020, and then I spent the last year and a half, I guess, really finishing out that second book. Um, and it's taken a while because, you know, life is crazy sometimes. <laughs> and we live through a pandemic. <laughs> yeah, and stuff. <laughs> and stuff. Because you're a mom as well. You also edit, like you're you're continuing to edit. Do you guys still have the magazine that you do? We don't do the magazine, okay. but we we converted it to a full time editing business. Um, so yeah, we all have different clients, and so work yeah. has not lowered. <laughs> not really, not really. And you know, as the kids get a little older, a little more independent, that can help. But yeah, it's it's a struggle um, sometimes for yes. sure to keep up. Yes. Because you you and I are both self-published and we've sort of been in that space. You've been editing for a while. You've been writing for a while. I feel like our our writing journeys are a little bit parallel. And so we were talking before about there's this thing in the indie world. What is it like 20 books to being your first million or what, what is that catchphrase that they do? Something that's Something outrageous crazy. for me to think about. Yeah. <laughs> like tick the boxes I'm so far away it's not even it's not even funny (laughs) um there's the rapid releasing right of people releasing a, a, a book a month and I've I've talked to some people some people are just really prolific um maybe we could say I, I would say maybe science fiction there's a lot more detail to it than some other books possibly romance where you can just sort of kind of make up a lot on the fly. It's really day, day-to-day life. You know, there sure. isn't so much research to do. Or, um, but how how do you navigate this world, this indie world in which people are like, come out with your next book now, <laughs> yesterday, two years ago? <laughs> I am still learning for sure. We're at the beginning of that uh, journey of understanding. But um, I think that for me, I've just had to keep my expectations realistic, which is hard. Like you say, we're in an industry when you're an indie author that the more books you have, the more likely you are to be successful and blah, 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 and speed. Um, I mean, I'd love to be able to put out a book a quarter, like four books a year. That would be amazing. But right now with life circumstances, I'm lucky to get one out this year, to be honest. Mm -hmm. It's been two, two years almost since my last release. Um, And like to what you had said about science fiction and and even fantasy and these genres that require a lot of in-depth world building and those genres, when people are reading them, they expect and they want usually a pretty high word count. So you're not pumping out a 60, 70,000 word novel that's that's romance that might not require as much research or or world building. Um, So it does take longer. And I'm also not the fastest writer. I'm I'm just not, especially when you grab like your time to write as a mom. Sometimes I don't know about you, but for me, it's 11 o'clock to 1 a.m. Yes. That's not when I do my best thinking, but that's 
what time I have. Right. Um, so I think my, I don't know if I have any advice, but my advice would be to do the best that you can that, um, as far as setting expectations for yourself, I think it's important that you don't set them so high that it robs you of the joy Mm -hmm. of what you're doing. That's a good point. You really need to keep that in there. And if it's not there, then why are you doing it? Um, and maybe someday we'll all be able to put out a book a month. What was that? That was a crazy number. But it's insane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's I crazy. mean, and you do have to look at um, different people's lives and how how they write and what they're willing to do, and um, you know, and how fast they can write. Um, I'm one of those writers that tends to start writing in order to really figure out what I want to write about. Um, I can't outline until I've really. St- I've written probably 40,000 words, which seems like a lot. And a lot of those aren't really used later on. So it can be frustrating. But how do you do that? Do you outline or has it, you know, has it changed from first carrier to blood for blood? Like, how is that? How do you write? It it does vary a little from project to project. Um, And maybe even necessarily for me, it can vary from stage to stage of that project. So if I am you know, we talked about the first book, how I had to stop and kind of do things more intentionally and do a little bit of mapping. Um, but sometimes you, like you, you do, you're feeling out the story, right. To see where is the story and what is worth keeping. And there's, there are phases of that for me too. Um, I know some people are, we call them mappers and then some people are pantsers by the seat of their pants. So I'd say I do a little bit of both. Um, but I'm, I'm always going to map at some point. For sure. I have to definitely go in and map whether that's on pen and with pen and paper, or there's a really cool tool called plotter Mm -hmm. that I'm starting to discover that um, is really neat. You can keep kind of your writing Bible there for your project with all your details and timelines and stuff. Um, So there is a mapping phase for sure. Um, But I wouldn't say that it's super consistent even per project. I think it can vary if I realize I'm lost in the weeds then, okay, now's the time to take a step back because this is pointless. <laughs> I'm lost. <laughs> Just keep writing words that you know you're going to cut. Yeah, right. I've really started to look into other people's way of doing things and just other, I guess, storytelling theories um, because I don't, I don't think that everyone has, you know, the one answer that will help all of us. Right. So one thing that I'm looking into is scene and scene development And what I am doing with this one is going back, I'll read about 10 chapters and then I'll go back. And it's honestly not my favorite because I really like, like the, the ego side of my brain. It's like, oh, it's fine. Just keep writing. (laughs) You know, like I like my book, you know, keep writing, but I'm going to, I'm going back and I'm mapping out the scene, like what happens, how things change, where they are, where they're going and how it transitions to really sort of have that more editor eye, I guess, on on the the book, um, because I don't have experience um, being an editor. So h- how do you get that editor eye on your own stuff? Because I can imagine it's not easy. I, I don't not, know, maybe it's a little easier no. for you. But <laughs> it's not easy. I don't think anybody, no matter how much experience you have as an editor, it's always going to be hard to be objective, like truly objective mm. about your work. Um, I'm usually, I've, I veer on the side of really harsh. 
for me when I'm looking at my own writing. With other people, I veer kind of a little to the other side. But (laughs) when it's for me, it's I see, oh, this is terrible. Why did you do this? What are you doing with your life? Um, So, yeah, I think you're wise to do that kind of scene by scene thing because there is a big switch that happens between writer brain and editor brain, Mm -hmm. isn't there? And it's not one that we can easily go between. So what I try to do is really write through quite a bit um, until, like I said, I'm either lost or I need to kind of go back and check, is this character journey what I think it is? Um, And then I'll go back with my editor brain on and read through and be pretty critical. Um, But I mean, yeah, nobody's ever objective about their work, really, as uh, that includes editors. (laughs) (laughs) We still, you still need other people to read it. Yes. Um, but what have you learned as an editor to be able to then go see? Because you said the character journey, like, um, what is it that you look out for when you're looking for that? For a character journey specifically, my main thing with with characters in general is that every character must ha- must have a must. So what must they do? Something that drives them, um, that is a compulsion. This is This is their journey. This is what they're doing. And that must can change or shift a little bit throughout the book. But generally, characters have something that drives them. We all do, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And the other factor with characters, I don't know, there's a lot to it because there's just so much psychology there, (laughs) is creating these really well-rounded characters that feel like people. Um, People are complicated and messy, and we're even inconsistent sometimes in our behavior. And that's hard to write because we want to write characters that kind of are more straightforward on the page sometimes, because I think we feel that's, that's easier for people to take in and relate to, but really characters can be pretty complicated. So really letting yourself go to that depth of thought for your characters of, you had said when you're in a scene, okay, what's happening in the scene? What's happened with this character? They've probably made a new discovery in that scene or changed their mind about something or they faced a new obstacle. So what has happened in that scene? I think that's a great exercise. Um, And by the end, every character should have changed Mm -hmm. somehow. That can can be minor change. It can be major change, but we are all learning and growing as, as our own characters in life. And I think characters do the same thing. They will change. And if they haven't changed, then they probably haven't had a great adventure to begin with. (laughs) And you might not be able to do a spinoff on them because nobody will care. True enough. Right. So I think psychology probably had came into effect in your books quite a bit because of the post-apocalyptic People are in survival mode, right? And people Mm -hmm. act differently in survival mode. So did you do any sort of research or do you have any history in that of like, what would people react like? Because you can't just take, you know, I'll base this off of my neighbor because you you haven't quite lived through an apocalypse, I don't think. (laughs) Right. I don't know what it counts for so much. I do have a degree in psychology um, and I have a degree in creative writing too. And they kind of work nicely together, don't they? Mm-hmm. Um, but psychology, as far as the psychology of the human mind or behavior in an apocalypse, you really do revert to more basic needs. 
right? Um, we have this hierarchy of needs, as psychologists like to refer to it, where you've got all this basic stuff at the bottom of the period of the pyramid, like food and water and shelter, <laughs> safety. Right. And before you can climb up to the top of the pyramid where you have something grand like self-actualization or purpose or whatever you want to call it, um, you have to meet these bottom needs. And so in this post-apocalyptic environment or any challenging, harsh world that you're creating as a writer, those needs kind of have to be addressed first. Um, and if it's really challenging, yeah, that's that's going to be what at least part of your story is about. And that's certainly yeah. the case with this series. Yeah, it's definitely something to to think of because um, there are some movies that you you or books that you can forgive. Like I just watched Reminiscence. I was on the plane, mm. <laughs> um, and it's entertaining. <laughs> you know <laughs> uh, what is it? Got? Ah, again, I can't remember. It's Hugh Jackman, of mm, course. Mm -hmm. So it's it's nice, you know, to watch. nice to watch <laughs> Hugh Jackman. But there are definitely like I. If I was going to edit or coach that book, I'd be like, I need to know how they're surviving here. <laughs> like, there's probably cholera all over this water. <laughs> like, why are they? Why are Where they is so the happy? Yes. <laughs> and why is she in a satin dress? You know. Um, so there is definitely that that balance, as you said. There's we're writing fiction, um, but if you're going to write 120,000 word novel most likely some readers are going to be like uh what, why are why are they singing in a jazz club <laughs> where's all the mold <laughs> you know that's great uh, indeed yeah believability is um important and if you if you look at the very basic environment that we even have in this world today in, in countries that aren't first world their lives day to day, we had been talking earlier before the podcast, their lives look very different than ours. Right. Um, and I, maybe as writers, we can sometimes slip into that trap of describing more fantasy or more what we're used to seeing during our day to day instead of what would these characters actually be going through. Right, right. Yeah. Which is a good reason to then look for like beta readers or... Um, Readers who will sort of look through that. I, I guess now we have alpha readers. Everything's always changing now with social media. Sometimes I feel really out of it. But <laughs> do you use beta readers or what is your process to making sure that your storyline is believable but entertaining and has all is consistently redheaded or brownheaded or whatever? <laughs> right. Um, I mean, beta readers, I think, are fantastic to bring in pretty early on in the process. I mean, ideally, right after you finish that first draft. I, with Blood for Blood, the second book in the series, didn't have the luxury of doing that mm -hmm. um, just because I had so many other things going on. And I was just kind of powering through when I had the right. time to get it done. I got it done. Um, and now at this point, and before I had my editor, who is not me, <laughs> yes. my editor read really closely and he's passionate about the story, which I think okay. is super important in an editor. Okay. Um, they're not just a machine to pump your story through, to check yes. for typos, right? They're your advocate and they really do enjoy what they're reading. Um, I think one of the best compliments an editor can give is, I had to slow down reading to make myself edit. Like I just wanted to keep reading. And I think that's the kind of editor we should all try to get. Um, so he's a big 
I, I don't want to say barrier, but a big stopping point for me to check that sanity for sure. Even okay. if he's just doing a line edit, he'll still say some things like, well, this, this really worked. This reveal of the villain worked for me, or this needs a little tweaking. Um, so that's Wait, been a big, can I help. interrupt you there yeah. for just a second for that, whether that's an editor or whether that's, I guess, more of a trusted beta reader, somebody who's sure. going to be pretty honest with you on how your story is working. How much do you take, especially as a new writer, and I know you have experience that maybe new writers don't, but the uh, sifting through the opinion of what mm -hmm. sort of they want to have happen in the story versus really the storytelling opinion of it. You know what I mean? Like what actually works for storytelling in order to sell your book versus what they as a reader want to have happen. Do you have any advice for how writers can navigate that? I think it's great when you do have the time and I, and I hope that people do make the time to have a larger group of beta readers. So, okay. you know, have a dozen beta readers if you can, and you'll see the comments that are the most common among them. Okay. Um, so that's generally the ones that I pay more attention to will be, okay, eight out of 10 people said they didn't understand what was happening here. That's a pretty good clue. Must be something, yeah. Yeah. Back when I used to do workshops in college and you would bring your your short story or whatever it was to the group and there would be 25 other people who read it and they'd tear it up and down. Yes. <laughs> and what do you take from that? Who who do I listen to? Are they all right? And I'm a terrible writer. Um, I think that the things that everybody says unanimously are important to take note of. And then anything that someone says that challenges you in one way or another, hmm. maybe they say they don't like your main character. Okay. So then you take that piece of advice and go back and, and read it again. And if you really love your main character, you toss that bit of advice out, whatever advice right. that is. Right. I don't think right. that's advice, but um, that opinion out and it, maybe it's more confirming, right? It affirms, you know what? No. I have thought about it and I do like what this character is doing. Um, so I think either way it can be constructive for you, whether you get really good feedback that is beneficial or some pretty crummy things that people say, yeah. I think it's, you've got to run it through your personal storyteller filter and see what is worth keeping here and what's throwing away. Right. And I think that does take practice. Um, and it's not an easy process to go through, is it? <laughs> no, it's really not. <laughs> really not. Um, and I think it's great if you can find an editor like you have found, um, who you trust, who who you can sort of maybe even bounce back and forth on on what they liked or what they didn't like or why. Um, and that's definitely that's quite a journey in itself just to find an editor like that. So it is. <laughs> I'm glad that you found one um, because I have worked with a, quite a few people and I myself have found one where you get to the end of their comments. and You're like, oh, you don't like my book. <laughs> <laughs> that's awkward. Yeah, I, I really I think that you this has become personal, you know, so. Um, <laughs> so you would recommend if if life allows to get beta readers. And I, I think we've talked about this before where we get the, um, that urgency. And I think you've, every time I have you come in to, to talk with my group or something, um, or on the podcast, you always say like, I know we all want to get our book out there, but that urgency could really, um, diminish your sales just because you're doing it too early. So like, if you can get 
good feedback on your book that that will maybe possibly help you not get that bad review or several bad reviews, right? Right. And it's another thing we had talked about frequency. If people are trying to put out a book, they feel this time pressure to put out a book every three months or even every six months. That is not a lot of time, especially as a newer writer, to write a novel that's really well written, get it edited and revise it and publicize it and all the things. It's just not. Um I don't know. It's unfathomable for me how quickly some people publish, but definitely take your time, especially if you're newer to publishing or newer to the writing world, take your time to do it well. So I think if you've been writing a book for a couple of years and you've had it through professional hands and you've revised, 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 you you might not need a giant slew of beta readers, but if you are really motivated to do that condensed publishing schedule, do your best to set aside at least a couple weeks for people to read it and give you that feedback. That would be my advice. It's it's not how I necessarily operate because I, I don't work that fast. But if yeah. you do work that fast, try to build some of that kind of sanity checking into your process if you can. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm still trying to figure out this puzzle of, of rapid releasing because it does, it, it's still, you're still beholding to other people, you know, like very few people can write a book, edit their own book and publish their own book. And it be a very good book. (laughs) Yes. That's the key at the end there. (laughs) And you continue to have those fans. Um, I know some people do it, um, but, and they do have their fans, but anyway, moving on. (laughs) (laughs) We're not opinionated about this at all. all. I'm just so confused about it. Yeah. (laughs) Like, wow. Maybe, maybe they have an editor that's just waiting for them. I guess. I don't know. It could be. be. (laughs) So the editing process of a book, we talked about this in my group (laughs) because yesterday someone goes, does anybody hate editing as much as I do? And everyone raised their hand except for one person who says that she loves editing. <laughs> so for for a book, especially because you have a series, you're probably coming out with one, maybe two more. I mean, these are longer books, too. So you're mm-hmm. really looking at like how many at least half a million words by the end of this series. <laughs> That's, That's crazy. Yeah. Right? Um, how how is the editing in revision for you is your first draft or whatever we consider. I, it's funny that we call it a first draft because I don't know how many times we go back, you know, before we're like, oh, the draft is done. <laughs> you know? um, do you, what is that editing process for you? Um, is there a lot of work to do? Is there a lot of revision? Or do you try to get through your, your first draft, like overlapping, kind of going back as you go I forward? think there's definitely overlap there for me. Um, or I'll reach a point in the story where I'm like, well, I kind of want to change this up. So let's go back 10 scenes ago and make that line up better now. Um, I'll definitely do that. I am not the type. And I really, I don't know many novel writers who are, who can just go through an entire draft without revising it all, um, without touching it again, (laughs) just don't look back. I, I can't really do that. Um, I think it's a challenge. I would like to, because I think you can get more words to play with. You can't really move the puzzle pieces around if you don't have the pieces on the board, right? But for me, there's it's an iterative thing. It'll all go back and 
revise or I'll reread the scene. Or if I'm not feeling like very creative and writing, that's when I'll turn to my editor brain and I'll be like, well, I can at least go revise this first scene and feel good about that day that I didn't waste that day. Um, So mine is definitely a mix. I I don't do them really orderly (laughs) orderly fashion. And at one point, I think for me, I reach a point with the manuscript where I've fin it's all done. It's the end is written at the bottom and I don't know what else to do with it. Maybe I think, you know what, there could be something wrong here, but I'm stuck. I'm brain dead about it and I'm not objective. So that's for me, the time when that goes to my editor, Okay. please, please help me, (laughs) help me see what I don't see. And then that usually kicks off a little bit more renewed creativity, Um, that can be helpful, but I don't know about you, but when you reach toward the end of that publishing or the, the writing journey to where you're publishing that book, is it kind of like, you just want it out? Yeah. You just want it gone. Yeah. I joked with, yeah, I joked with my friend. I said, remember when, when you were getting married and when I was getting married and we weren't really into the wedding stuff, the wedding planning, the wedding, we just wanted to be married to this person that we loved. I just want to be married. And I'm at that point with the book, like, I don't care. I don't, I just want to be married. I'm, yes. I'm yes. <laughs> I know. And, and it's, it's interesting how long it takes to get there. Mm-hmm. That's what I think can be really frustrating to writers. Um, I do like your, your plan of like, you have the draft as much as you can see it, but you don't have that mentality of like, oh, and in three weeks I'm publishing this book. It's more like, Help me see if there's anything. Because I do think that a lot of our issue as indie writers is mindset. It's mm-hmm. like just because you hit the end, because way back when I finished my first one in 2017, that's that I did have that, like, I want this out now. I'm done. Sure. I'm done with it. But if we could like switch that a little bit and like, okay, how about I take a break and you help me figure out what's wrong with this storytelling? Yes. Um, and thank goodness I did that because, as I say this all the time, they told me to cut 40,000 words because it was a 120,000 word romance, historical romance. She Epic like, romance. She's like, no, this is not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so I do like that advice, too. It's just like cutting that mindset a little bit. You're not done yet. Right. You'll probably have to go revise it. And like you said, it will it will uh, re invigorate your creativity, which we want, right? Because once you publish your book, you do want it to be the best that you could have done in the moment that you're living. That's a good note. I think Um, it needs to be the very best of your capabilities at that time. Mm -hmm. The challenging thing we call it the writer's curse is you'll finish a project and it's done and out there. And you learned so much by doing that project that now you see all the flaws and what you once thought was pretty good, right? right? So you're it's a constant state of learning. And I think that can also trap people into this mindset that then I can never publish because yeah. it's never going to be good enough. It's never going to be done. Um, and there is a story of this guy who wrote a very famous uh, short story. I'm struggling to the things they carried, the things we carried. Um, he was this, by this time, this short story is really well-known decades old, famous and beloved. And he's going up this old man to read this story from a podium. And he has a paper, you know, printout of it and he's editing it <laughs> as he's going up. 
<laughs> and we're all going to do that. We want yeah. to do that. Right. So at some point you just have to decide I'm done. This yeah. is good. This is great for my abilities right now. I'm happy and content with this. Am I going to learn more from this and probably want to tweak things when I'm 70 and going up to the podium? Probably, but (laughs) I'm still going to have the courage to press publish today. And that can be challenging. So not too soon, but also you got to, you got to do it eventually. Right. 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 That is true. That it is that balancing act there. So as you get ready for blood for blood to come out, you've gone through the editing, it's all done. You're not going to touch it anymore. Right. Is that I'm I'm in the final read through checking from like doing my own proofread before it goes to somebody else to proofread. You then have a you do it. So I tried, I thought about doing my own audiobook and I kept doing that too, where I kept editing and re-editing and re-editing. And I was like, I better not read this anymore because I'm gonna just keep edit it to death. Because there is such a thing as too much editing, right? So you are doing the tweaking, Mm -hmm. um, which isn't that bad. Like all the, all the big work has happened, right? You're happy with the story, with the characters, with the development. Right. Do you have a cover yet? I have a draft cover. So we're still working on the typesetting and kind of some fades and stuff, but yeah, we have the cover art and layout and all that stuff. Awesome. So, um, it comes out, you're shooting for October. Is it mm-hmm. going to be wide or how do you publish? Well, I usually with first carrier, I did have an audiobook. Um, I won't with Blood for Blood, but with first carrier, I had three different formats. I had audiobook, ebook, and then the paperback. Um, the paperback was wide, and the ebook I did with Amazon through KDP, um, mm-hmm. where it's just with Amazon. And then the audiobook was through Find Away Voices, and you can get that wide. They distribute mm-hmm. wherever you want. Right. Um, so a mix because I'm of the mindset both in in publishing and in life investments, whatever you want to call it, of not all of my eggs in one basket. Right. Um, I think that some people have a lot of great success with putting all their eggs in one basket. We all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Amazon. Yes. Uh, but that's just not quite my style. I think they're really great and they're really easy to work with um, from a publishing perspective. But I also like to go wide. And I like people to be able to find it um, in other areas, especially a paperback that you can get through a local bookstore or whatnot is always really cool. Right. And I think science fiction, a lot of people still like to have those books. I've discovered at least with my current audience, when I did a lot of polling and I looked at the sales from the first book that they like paper for sure. It's Yeah. It's, I mean, that's how I'm wired too. So I can relate a lot, but yeah, interesting to learn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, how? What made you make the decision to not do audio this time? I think this time for me, it was just, it was going to be too much mm-hmm. um, to get this book out on time. And I really wanted to, I want to get it out for my readers as well. The ones that have been waiting for two years. I know that as a reader, that's a lot to, it's a lot to ask. <laughs> I don't want to make them wait longer for something that just, it's not as popular for my readers yet um, of a format. It it was very small compared to, it was kind of audiobook and then ebook and then paperback was the most popular. Um, So I'm really leaning into the paperback thing and have some cool stuff coming for them that I think they'll like. But yeah, that's, that's the main reason why. I've also looked into narrating your own. I'm just not I don't have the time, as we've talked about. Time is hard, and it's also really challenging. You have to be an actor in addition to, you know, yeah. Yeah, the voices. You have to make the voices. And you have to remember what voice you made. 
I don't know how many times I'm reading to my kids and they're like, you just changed the voice. I was like, well, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's your opinion. <laughs> yeah. But I like how you made that business decision um, because as indie authors, it's half business, right? We have to look at those numbers. We have to poll people. We have to find who our readers are, where they are and what format they want. And I think it's a wise decision to have made that time investment to figure that out. And because it's also going to be a money investment to make an audiobook, and if it's not going to give you a return yet, sure, um, it's worth not. And then you can use that money for other fun paperbacks. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the goal this time is to invest. Since I see them really loving that side of things, well, cool. Let's let's play with that side of things more and meet their needs. Not just what I want to do necessarily, right. but what do they want from me, and how can I bless them? Is always yeah. should be top priority, I think, as a writer. And as like you say, a marketer, a lot of it's it's business. Yeah. Yeah. We shouldn't do things just because that's what the big publishers do, right? They come sure. out with all the formats. Um, so as on the business end, I was part of your launch team in 2020, which was mm -hmm. fun. And you put in a lot of work into that. And um, what what have you changed or what have you decided to keep for the launch team for Blood for Blood? Well, I'm changing the format up a little bit. Um, I used, as far as uh, the main place that we would interface with each other, I used Facebook. And I, I just, I don't love social media in general. And I don't really like Facebook very much. And I know a lot of people are starting to move away from it. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm looking into alternative ways for us to interact and not just be email or something right. like that. Um, so I'm looking into Discord, which is okay. a really cool like group-based kind of social media thing that a lot of gamers use and, and other people use it too, yeah. um, to try that out and see how it goes. But my goal is definitely to keep it a pretty tight, small launch team, because I think they can be sometimes more effective than 50 people who aren't really engaged. Okay. Um, I think it's better to have a more engaged, tighter knit group. Right. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's all learning. That's why I'm changing things up this time because yeah. it's only my second time doing this. So it's a process. <laughs> yeah, for yes. sure. Did you, but you found it beneficial enough to, to do it again, to have a lot. I think game. so. I think so. Um, and I don't have much to compare it by because I didn't release a book without one before, but I think the launch is such an important period of time, especially mm -hmm. that first month or so of your book. And there's a bunch of different ways to strategize. You can go for a bunch of sales right away to try to hit bestseller numbers on Amazon, or you can do pre-order strategy and get orders over time. And yeah, there's a bunch of different ways to go about it. So I'm trying to test things out and see what works, what works for me yeah. um, and what's effective to just get the word out there about the book. And I think launch teams are a great way to do that, at least part of the picture for sure. Right. So for your book, because it's a series, do they have to have read First Carrier? To understand Blood for Blood? I mean, yes, but my solution to that is if you haven't read First Carrier, but you're really interested in the series and, and getting in on it and doing this launch team, I'm going to provide a synopsis for First Carrier for them. So it's just a couple of pages of this is what happened in the story and this is who the characters are. So they might not get as much depth, of course, from a sequel uh, as they would have otherwise, but at least they know what's going on, yes. <laughs> who people are. That's always important. Because really, you want your launch team to have read the book, correct? Ideally, ideally. Yeah, because yeah. they're going to then be 
pushing the book and telling people about it because they are a fan of the book. Right. They will have liked the book, right? And then you provide them with, are you going to do social media or like swipe copy or how, how do you do it or how are you going to do it this time? For like uh, the book distribution or yeah, for, for them to mm-hmm. talk about it, I guess. I think there's a bunch of different ways. Um, one thing that I liked to do last time was really ask launch team members, what are you passionate about? And okay. what is your, what's your gift? What's your, what are your unique circumstances? So okay. if somebody is a member of a book club, maybe that's kind of their task, right? Is to see if their book club will read the book and right. talk to others about it. If somebody is on a podcast, <laughs> has a podcast, maybe they can spread the word about it that way. Okay. Um, and some people have really grand social media followings. I don't, it's not my chance. <laughs> And they can leverage that uh, for that purpose. So I think it's kind of an individualized thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But definitely the goal is word of mouth. For me, at the end of the day, I think that the best way to find new books and the way that I find new books is by asking my reader friends, what are you reading right now? What's the best thing you read in the last month, in the last six months? And that's how I often pick my next book. So that's the most important thing to me. And it's definitely a grassroots approach because it is slower. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a little slower than paying for a lot of advertisements or, you know, throwing money at a problem, I guess. Yes. <laughs> but I think that it's, it has higher dividends in the end, or it can. And that way you do get people who are legitimately passionate. They're not just, I don't know, strangers who kind of share it on social media for the heck of it. Yeah. Yeah. And as a new writer, somebody who is constrained by a budget, as most of us are, um, it can help you find those beta readers too, right? The people who become sort of your super fans and for your third or fourth or whatever comes down the line, maybe they're willing to read it even ahead of launch. Definitely. And I think your mailing list, if you have an email list going, that's crucial. And that's a really great place to start for things like beta readers, because beta readers shouldn't be your mom or your your sibling or your best friend necessarily. Although those opinions can be great. And especially if they're um, for the purpose of lifting you up and encouraging you, we need that sometimes. (laughs) But also to get the more objective criticism. I think it's important to go to people who are passionate about your work because they're on your mailing list, but will also be more upfront with you about issues that they had or or questions that they had in the manuscript. Yeah, absolutely. So how can people find you and get on your mailing list um, and possibly be part of your launch team or part of whatever is coming, all these surprises that are coming with the paperback and all that? Yeah, the best place is to go to my website, madelinemosley.com, and you can sign up for my mailing list there. There's a link at the top of the very homepage. There's links on the side. And by doing that, you'll also get a collection of free short stories. Uh, The events in those short stories take place before the events of First Carrier, which is the first book in the series. Um, So it's kind of fun, and you get those free short stories, and then you'll also be hooked up to where you get my, I send out about one email a month, not a whole lot. During this launch period, there'll be a few more. Um, Lots of exciting things coming though. I mean, other things that they can be involved in, giveaways, all that fun stuff that comes with the book launch. So it's a great time to really get engaged and you'll also get emails about the launch team if that's something you want to to sign up for, to apply for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we will have the links in the show notes and um, I am excited to see this book come out. Thank you so much for coming and telling us about it. 
Thank you for having me on again. It's always so much fun talking. Hey, you're still listening. Since you are, could you do me a favor and head over to the app that you're listening to this episode on and hit the subscribe button and then rate and review the show? It would really help the Pencils and Lipstick podcast get out into the world. And if you're enjoying the podcast, well, then there might be more people out there who would enjoy it as well. If you want to find out more about me, you can head over to catcaldwell.com. I have my story over there, my books, my interactive journals, my one-on-one coaching information, and information on my creative writing community membership group. If you're looking to write a book or you are a writer and you just want to find out more about how to write, how to publish, how to format, how to market, and all the things that go into being an author these days, check out the membership group. There is a 14 free day trial that you can try it out, get into the masterminds, find out all the goodies that we are talking about in the group. I would love to see you there.